Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we've got two things we have not seen in a long time. One, we have snow here in the D.C. area. I mean, some serious snow coming down as this podcast goes on the air. Uh, it's been it's been a long time. No we have, snow days for us, though, right? No snow days for this podcast. No snow days. I, I I don't know that we've seen snow hardly at all of any significant way since Donald Trump was elected president. I mean, I don't know what to I don't know what to make of this. I don't know what to make of the other thing we haven't seen in a long time is a Republican leader in Congress acknowledging election results. Take a listen. This was Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate. Our system of government has processes to determine who will be sworn in on January the 20th. The Electoral College has spoken. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. The President-elect is no stranger to the Senate. He's devoted himself to public service for many years. I also want to congratulate the Vice President-elect, our colleague from California, Senator Harris. Beyond our differences, all Americans can take pride that our nation has a female vice president-elect for the very first time. Now, it's been noted that Vladimir Putin actually got around to congratulating Joe Biden before Mitch McConnell. But look, he, he did it. He also uh, sent a, a very clear message to, uh, to the rest of the Republicans in the Senate that when it comes time to go through that one last formality uh, on January 6th when uh, the electoral uh, votes are, are, are brought before the Congress, uh, he doesn't want any fun, funny business of, of you know, Republicans objecting. Um, and he's made, a, he's made a good point, which is if you do that, all that happens, if, if, as you know, Rick, if you, have, if you have members of the House and the Senate joining together to object to the electoral uh, uh, college uh, vote, then then Congress has to vote, and it's a simple majority vote. And he said Republicans are going to have to be on the record voting <laughs> against the challenge to the electoral college. He doesn't want a difficult vote. I don't really understand why that's a difficult right. vote, but but apparently it's a difficult vote. Um, but because Trump would like it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess he might not like it. I guess that's I guess that's a good point. Um, but we still don't. I mean, look, enough on this stuff, but I mean, we, 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 we still don't see a majority of the Republicans in Congress coming out and offering that congratulations. Still. No, no, you don't, don't jump. But I, I, I think I, you don't, and, and that's, that's inexcusable at this stage. But I think McConnell is setting a tone that many of his members have, uh, have echoed since the Electoral College, made it formal, made it official, no surprises on Monday as the votes went through. Uh, Donald Trump lost. Joe Biden won. That's become extremely obvious. I was struck also by the way that Biden and uh, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris responded to the McConnell news, because a lot of Democrats were making the point that 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 uh, that you just made that you know, hey, come on, it's, this is it's six weeks on. You know, what do you want to you want a parade? You want to let's celebrate the fact that Putin got there first. But actually, Joe Biden's welcoming of the McConnell statement, and uh, and I think in terms of trying to find a working relationship. Biden is eternally the optimist, and I think he is taking that call. He would have liked it to happen a while back, but as, as, uh, as Senator Harris uh, told our colleague Robin Roberts. I applaud Mitch McConnell for, for talking to Joe Biden today. You know, it would have been better if it were earlier, but it happened, and that's what's most important. And so let's move forward. Let's move forward 
and where we can find common purpose and common ground, let's do that. Let that be our priority. They're trying to take it in some kind of a spirit of potential cooperation as Congress closes in potentially on a COVID deal and a whole lot of work has to get done next year. And, and, and the COVID deal that, that, that's emerging seems to be following basically the what, what McConnell himself laid down, which is let's just take out the two most controversial things and, and, and you know that, that, that are keeping a deal from happening. Take them both, and what one is what we want: liability protection. The other is what Democrats want: direct aid to uh, to to states and localities, and then have a vote on what we agree on. It's like it's like I think McConnell actually is, you know, we've talked about this before, but I, I think McConnell is thinking he's going to enjoy the Biden era. Uh, although, what what did General Malley Din- Dillon uh, uh, the uh, say? Uh, obviously, incoming Deputy Chief of Staff for. For Joe Biden, what, what did she say about McConnell? Was this interview she did? I'm not sure that we could say the words on our on our podcast. Actually, uh, 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 a bunch a bunch of efforts. <laughs> I think was the was the quote talking about uh, Republican uh, Republican comments saying that particularly McConnell is is terrible. Uh, I, I, she's not alone in the Democratic Party, by the way. On that, there's a lot of people that would would agree on that very frank assessment of Mitch McConnell and Republicans. Joe Biden though really isn't one of them. Right. And, uh, so. What one of the fascinating dynamics of the of the Biden years, or you know, the, the, whatever Biden term looks like, is going to be that he's going to be pushed and pulled in directions inside his own party that that really aren't fitting in his own instincts. And Republicans know that about him as well. But whether he's able to, you know, you know, if he's able to to uh, avoid the push pull uh, inside his party of uh, of a colorful assessment from his former campaign manager and the like will be what defines a lot of his legislative success. By the way, another uh, interview that caught my eye was an interview that uh, AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, gave with the Intercept, uh, suggesting saying that she thinks it's time for new leadership. Yeah, for in Congress for Democrats, that, that Pelosi and Schumer are not the leaders for the moment. Well, that was very interesting. She also, by the way, in the interview, ruled out running for leadership herself at this moment. Said that she did, she didn't think that she was she was ready for that. But but very strong words. She's going to be very interesting to watch here as Pelosi tries to. Um, you know, tries to navigate, assuming that she's reelected uh, a speaker, as she tries to to navigate a majority that is a very a very small majority, where uh, AOC and her allies uh, will have power to call some shots. And AOC once said that in you know most other democracies, that that she and Joe Biden wouldn't even be in the same party, uh, and the push for generational ideological. Uh, change up in leadership. It's bigger than uh, a, a, a congressional question. It does extend to the White House itself. And look, what's united Democrats over this last year and maybe years has been one thing, Donald Trump. He's gone January 20th. Once that's gone, what the party looks like and how the uh, 70 and 80 somethings who are running it in Washington adjust to these new realities. That's going to be fascinating. And and you're right. AOC says she's not running for leadership, but I don't think she has said she's not going to run for Senate. Chuck Schumer is up in 2022. And by the way, so AOC is calling on Schumer and Pelosi to pack their bags in terms of their leadership posts. There's also another interview uh, that our friend Jonathan Martin in the New York Times did with John Tester, 
uh, from from the other side of the Democratic Party, John Tester, uh, who won re-election as senator from from Montana two years ago, uh, you know, much more uh, of a moderate, but he was critical of uh, of Schumer as well, and and uh, has a very different idea about the direction of of the Democratic Party. Yes, different. Similar only in that Chuck Schumer isn't the guy to, to make the <laughs> to make the pitch out in Montana. But but yeah, I mean, I th- what he is recognizing, I think, is an obvious flaw in the Democrats' coalition right now. Not to say OAOCs isn't isn't either, but at least they're getting young people to vote for them. Democrats, that is, they're not getting uh, rural Americans to vote for them. They're not getting Montanans to vote for them. And uh, it is an, an eye-opening interview in that you know, tester. Uh, was able to win. Uh, and two years later, uh, the governor of that state, the popular Democratic st- governor of that state, Steve Bullock, was unable to win uh, in that presidential year. And Donald Trump's got a lot to, 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 has a lot to say about that and a lot to, to explain about that, that there is a huge appeal to Donald Trump that remains and, and is likely to remain to some extent in the post-Trump era, that uh, if the Democratic Party ignores that because they've got the presidency, then they're going to have a real hard time in 2022 and beyond. All right, Rick, we, we have a, we're going to take a, a slightly different turn here. We have an important interview uh, coming up. We're going to be talking to Dr. Deborah Burke, somebody we haven't really seen much of lately, somebody who, of course, was a fixture at those coronavirus uh, briefings uh, in the early uh, months of, of the pandemic. Uh, she is out on the road, and we will talk to her somewhere out on the road, I think somewhere in Kentucky or Tennessee or some someplace where they make whiskey, but we'll be back. Uh, in just a moment with that conversation with Dr. Deborah Burks. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Dr. Deborah Burks, who is on the road. Dr. Burks, as you have been uh, quite a bit over the last several months, where are you coming to us from? We're coming to you between Kentucky and Tennessee. So you, you first of all, uh, I, I want to talk to you about your th- this incredible uh, road trip you you have been on for the last several months, but but first off, have you been vaccinated yet, or, or do you intend, if not, to get vaccinated soon? Well, I would love to get vaccinated, but I think I have to wait until it's my turn by my age mm-hmm. and my comorbidities. Um, so so you you became somebody that all of America got used to seeing every night uh, in the in those uh, coronavirus press briefings at the White House uh, back in March, April, May. Um, and, and, and into the, uh, and into the beginning of the summer. Uh, but, but you have spent much of the last, uh, uh, several months on the road, uh, which I, I think, can, can you, can you give us a, a sense of, of what you have been up to, um, and, and what you are seeing out there? Uh, cause I, I think that you've traveled more than anybody I've spoken to <laughs> in quite some time. Well, we've, um, traveled about 25,000 miles. We've been to 43 states, um, most of them more than two times. Um, Really in-depth communication with governors, mayors, community, um, our our incredible hospital staff, and really trying to understand what people are seeing um, and what needs to be done on the ground and how we can be most supportive. And most importantly, what people are hearing when we're talking. And that's been really quite important um, because things are sometimes taken out of context. So we've been on the road since the end of June. It's been really, I've learned a lot about the United States and our, our vastness and our different populations and 
meeting with our tribal leaders, with chairmen from the tribe has been just so essential. Meeting with local Hispanic, African-American leadership, talking to essential workers. And I think the most important piece about being on the ground is really looking in every aspect of the guidelines and how they're being implemented. So we go to gas stations, we go to drug stores, we go to grocery stores, we go to restaurants, coffee shops, into retail, trying to really understand um, how are the guidelines being utilized on the ground by the public. So in, in my travels, which have been a, a tiny, tiny fraction of, of what you have done, um, it, it has been striking to, to see parts of our country uh, where you see very little mask wearing and very little apparent concern um, about coronavirus. Even in my, I, I haven't had a chance to go back to my old home state of South Dakota during this, but I've been in touch uh, with, with folks back there. And South Dakota's obviously been through a real rough patch of, of, of late, but um, but you know, there's there's not a lot of mask wearing back there, as far as I can tell. What 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 is what is your sense of the kind of compliance with those guidelines? You know, that's that's a, you just hit the nail on the head. That's why we wanted to go out. We wanted to hear what people were hearing, um, why they were interpreting our public health messages in the way that they were. I mean, these are very smart, resilient, hardworking. Americans. And now that I've been to all of these places, I can see why they have to be so resilient. You know, they're, you have to plan your gassing of your cars. So, I mean, this is, they really have to plan ahead. It's a long way to supermarkets. Obviously there's mm. great um, snow and weather. And so these are really self-sufficient individuals. And I think they were interpreting our messages a little bit different way than they were intended. So across the upper Northwest, um, what we were hearing from the Northern Plains states is really when they heard um, the comment from CDC that 94% of the people who died from COVID had comorbidities. In our mind, we're saying, these are your risk factors. You're going to have a much more significant and potentially deadly course if you have hypertension, diabetes, obesity, et cetera. What they heard is, only 6% of people in America really are dying from COVID. The majority are dying from something else. And that, that's why when you're dealing with your primary ability to combat this virus, this is before we had vaccines, but our primary ability to combat this virus was personal behavior change. You have to really understand what people are hearing because their ability to change their behavior really relies on them hearing the information and internalizing the information for themselves. And so that's why it was really important to talk to everybody. And you're right, there's, there were very divergent views on this. I think what you've seen now, particularly in the Northern Plains states and the Rocky Mountain states, is when they saw their hospital personnel coming online, which we really asked them to do, we asked hospital nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists to go on the local news and say, we lost five grandparents today. We lost two grandparents today. We lost a, uh, an aunt that was cherished in the community because she was around individuals that were unmasked. So really to make it much more real and understandable. And they responded when they saw their hospitals under threat. What we're trying to do is get people to respond before the hospitals are under threat, before we have such widespread community spread. 
Dr. Burks, you, you mentioned a moment ago that, that you didn't plan to get a vaccine until either your age cohort or the comorbidities would put you in line. I, I'm curious how that's working exactly, particularly when we see that the acting defense secretary has only got the job for another month. The West Virginia, the governor of West Virginia uh, are among those who've gotten the vaccine before almost anyone else in the country. Is there a, a medical reason to see political leadership essentially jump the line, go first? Uh, or or is, that, is that kind of a system breakdown when something like that happens? No, I think I, I, I was just in West Virginia um, a meeting with the governor and his incredible staff. And I, I am sure that that governor who has cared so deeply about every single resident of West Virginia, it hurts him every day to see the number of people they're losing to COVID. And they've done a remarkable job considering their health system and considering the amount of age and comorbidities they have in their state. And that's because he's been very proactive. I think he wanted to demonstrate to every West Virginian that you need to get this vaccine. Um, and it's important. So I think people that are in true leadership positions, I consider myself a civil servant. So I consider myself in, in an everyday essential worker category. And depending on where that, I do not want to jump the line. I want to be, um, I'm totally supportive of vaccination. Obviously I've worked on vaccines for a large portion of my life. Um, I understand how this vaccine was made. I understand the safety of the vaccine. And critically, I understand the depth of the efficacy of this vaccine. This is one of the most highly effective vaccines we have in our infectious disease arsenal. And so that's why I'm very enthusiastic about the vaccine. But I feel like all, like all the rest of essential workers, which hopefully they'll do essential workers by age, because what we do know, we know precisely who's at risk for severe disease and, and an unfortunate outcome. And you mentioned you mentioned the the good news on the vaccine front, uh, Moderna moving ahead, the Pfizer vaccine already uh, uh, dis being distributed. What is your best sense of how long it's going to take to answer the big question of when we get back to normal, when we'll be able to resume everyday life? How how deep into 2021 or even beyond that? What's what's kind of the back of the envelope thought now on on when we could say life comes back? So there's two important sides of that equation. And sometimes we lump them together, but I wanna make it clear there's two very important sides to that equation. There's herd immunity, which would prevent community spread. And then there's absolute clarity on what people need in an equity way to prevent severe disease, hospitalizations, and fatalities. So that's really, we can get enough vaccine to prioritize essential workers, let's say people over 50 or people with comorbidities. And I wanna really thank those essential workers. They're the ones that have made these road trips possible. Can you imagine if there weren't people in the gas stations and the takeouts of McDonald's and the coffee shops? I mean, we wouldn't have been able to sustain our road trips. And so we've been sustained by the essential workers. So immunizing essential workers by age knowing that that's a specific risk category, immunizing all Americans over 65, as we know that's a critical risk category. Certainly governors moving on rapid immunization of their long-term care facility residents because we know that they've been enormously susceptible um, to this virus. And so if we approach it that way, I think we can get most of the vulnerable Americans immunized through January and February um, and the beginning of March. And then we can start working on herd immunity, but we could dramatically change 
the future of this virus in America impacting hospitalizations, decreasing fatalities. And I think that is a really great first step while we then work on achieving herd immunity through the spring and the summer. In, in how bad do you think the, uh, you, you made some very stark comments a couple weeks ago about how bad this winter could be. How, how bad do you think the next, the next month or two can be before we start seeing what you described happen? Well, that is really, um, that's why we're back out on the road. Um, and that's why we went to um, first New Jersey and Delaware. We were headed to Pennsylvania and we wish the governor really well. We wanna make sure that he does well in Pennsylvania and his staff. Um, and then we went on to West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and then we're headed to North Carolina and Virginia. We, we particularly picked those states because we have seen, obviously, this outbreak, this surge that we saw in the cold areas of the United States when that Arctic cold moved down in the early October. People moved indoors in a rapid way and then caused an enormous what, late fall winter surge northern plains, Rocky Mountain states, into Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Illinois. But we see now with aggressive mitigation in many of those states that they are, they are now improving. But they had the largest rate of rise and the most counties in, engaged in this community spread that we had seen historically. So much more than the spring and summer, and almost twice the rate of rise of infections that we saw in the spring and the summer. And we wanted to carry that message to both coasts, as well as to Ohio, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, um, and Tennessee, and all the coastal states, because we're seeing if that same rate of rise, now remember the states we were talking about are about 20% of the US population. If we have that same rate of rise and community spread in the 80% of the population states across the coast into the mid-Atlantic, um, all the way up into the Northeast and of course across the West Coast, that will be a dramatic impact on both hospitalization rates and fatalities. And so we wanted to carry that message that if you act now, you don't have to have the same experience that we saw in the Northern Plains states, the Rocky Mountain states um, over the last two months. So Dr. Borks, I, I know your time is short. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, a, a, a couple of quick, uh, quick questions about the, about the future. Um, when, do you intend to, or do you believe you will serve as part of the Biden team? Have you been in touch with them? I've been in touch with the transition teams to give them um, how I see the epidemic in the United States, to send them slides and data so that they understand what, what I'm seeing. You know, I've spent my lifetime studying epidemics at the community level, and that's, you know, I think very relevant. And so I wanted to make sure that they, they could see what I have been seeing. Um, as a civil servant, I, I would go back to where I came from, I imagine. Um, and it would be up to the Biden administration to decide if I could be any utility of that to them or not. And, and I want to ask you, I'm sure you saw, you got the SNL treatment uh, uh, last week, <laughs> which uh, they've, 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 they've had some, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've had some fun with you over, over the course of this past year. Um, but, but, but they, on, in, in this last uh, skit, um, were, were basically poking fun at you for not uh, doing more to, um, you know, challenge the president when he said things that were, that were kind of out there. I mean, I remember I was in the room when the president talked about light inside the body and, 
and possibly injecting uh, disinfectants. Looking back at your time, do you have any regrets? Do you wish that you had been more forceful to step forward and kind of correct the record when there was, you know, obvious uh, misinformation coming right from the White House? Well, I think no one really knows what I've done inside the White House. Um, that will all come to light um, because, you know, this data, I write a daily report, so it's very clear um, my interpretation of the epidemic. I think if you were in that room during that um, incident, you will understand that he was talking to the DHS secretary, I mean, DHS scientist that entire yes. time. And when he turned to me, I did say not a treatment. Um, I stand by that. It is not a treatment. Um, that dialogue was not with me, however. And I, you know, I served in the military for 29 years, and I've always um, been very respectful in public and very clear in private. Um, and having come out of the military, our one rule is you're a soldier and you follow command until it's an unlawful order. And I have to say, in my time in the White House, which is 10 months out of my 40 years in public service, I never received an unlawful order. And so I never had to break with that chain of command, which I have been lived through for, for decades in that um, you don't, you're very clear in private and in public, you are clear when you're asked a, an answer, a question. Um, and I think, you can talk to governors and mayors. Um, we've also been very clear with them in private. Then we also do uh, go out and do press, and we're try we try to be very clear to the people of their state. But I, I, I've often found it's really important if you have something challenging to deliver that you deliver that in private, and you work very hard to use everything that you have to convince people of what needs to be done. It's it's such an interesting. I mean, I'm sure we'll be talking about this for for years, the challenge that you and Dr. Fauci um, and, and some of the other uh, healthcare professionals uh, that were at those briefings, we often wanted to hear more from you than frankly we wanted to hear from the, from the political leadership um, because we got a sense we were getting facts and facts that we can trust. And, and I know I could see it in your face at times. I mean, when you have you know, the president time after time saying that, you know, kind of downplaying the, uh, the, the danger of the virus um, overselling the way things were going to be coming back, getting back to normal, talking about hydroxychloroquine. I know it's just, like, you know, it's not like you can jump in front of the podium and say, ah, wait a minute. No, it's not true, Mr. President. I mean, it, you know, you obviously you're, you're, you're there, you know, serving your part, doing your very important work for the administration. One last thing before you go, that there, there was a moment in one of those briefings, which you may recall, where I I asked you about California's decision to, uh, to buck the CDC's guidelines um, on, on testing asymptomatic individuals. And um, it's, it's just one that really struck me because I, I, I asked you about this. It was a very serious issue. Um, and and you, you said, well, of course, it's in our guidelines. We were the first group to say that testing asymptomatics will be the key. And the president jumped in and looked at me and, and, and acted like I was totally out to lunch. Um, you know, John, you didn't know it was in the guidelines? You didn't know? And then I said, we're, we, we were talking about the CDC guidelines, which obviously it wasn't, as you well know. This is maybe a little bit kind of very close to home because I was asking about a very serious issue. You gave an answer that gave the implication that I was wrong. I was not. Um, and then the president jumped on it. 
I mean, and that was an important issue, was it not? Was getting the CDC to finally change its guidelines so that, so that we would see the testing of asymptomatic individuals. I know you advocated. It's kind of why I asked you the question. Yeah, that has been a long-term advocacy of mine. Yes, yes, I know. Um, it was part of the reason, to be frank, why I came into the White House. Um, I was obviously, this was not my job. I have a lot of experience with tracking pandemics and understanding pandemic curves. And I could see that we weren't dealing with the core issues. You don't have those kind of curves in Italy. Um, you don't have those kind of curves in New York City um, with only symptomatic patients. Uh, it just didn't make sense. So either you had to have amazing aerosolized and surface transmission, or you had to have the majority of the, the transmission being silent and asymptomatic. So what I was referring to was the guidelines that we had writ written um, with the gating criteria because I fought hard to get the issues about sentinel populations in there and, and testing and setting up um, really populations in communities that could illustrate that asymptomatic spread, knowing that if you waited till people showed up in the emergency room and in the hospital, you were already behind in your mitigation, which still states today, wait until they see people in the emergency room and in the hospital. Um, and so that has worried me from the very beginning. Um, I've been forcing that issue from the beginning because I think it's core and now we have a clear illustration from universities that universities that required weekly testing of their student that tested the way we did and those right. that tested proactively um, um, infected less than one percent of their student body so I think not only is testing key but testing has to be aligned to the real need to demonstrate this asymptomatic spread, which is what we've been out talking to states about also, of how to use testing more strategically. Right. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. It was just in, in, in that moment, I was highlighting what was a major issue, as you well knew, uh, with uh, you know, local <clears throat> healthcare providers around the country, uh, essentially not being able to go through and do the testing of asymptomatics because the CDC at that time was saying don't test people uh, that are that are asymptomatic, and I asked you about it, and you gave the impression like this wasn't an issue. This was in your guidelines, but but you, you know your guidelines aren't what the, you know what 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 the uh, local health officials were looking at. They were looking at the CDC guidelines. So anyway, it's just. Um well, I think we agree. It's a really important point, and if that's how what I said was interpreted, I I apologize because that has been. Um, my mantra since the beginning to really, um, yeah. and I worked with the CDC after they posted those revised guidelines to get them um, changed to really finding this asymptomatic spread. And then I think if you look at the governor's reports, we're very careful. Um, I think Kentucky has all of theirs online, but we're very careful in every governor's report to really talk about strategic testing. All right. Well, Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for checking in with us from the road. Uh, safe travels and, uh, and good luck as you continue your very important work. Great. Thank you. I just want to close by really appealing to every American why we are so close to having vaccines for the 100 million vulnerable Americans with comorbidities protect each other during this holiday season. Make sure that your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your parents, if you're young and under 40, you probably, when you get infected, are asymptomatic and you're highly contagious and infected. 
infectious to those among you that you love. So please wear a mask indoors if you choose to gather. Don't demask. You can open your holiday presents, whether they're Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa with masks on. Please protect one another while we're so close to protecting the rest of Americans with vaccines. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Burks. We'll see you when you get back. Thank you. Take care. So, so Rick, before we, uh, before we close out, I, I, since we went kind of back and forth at length about that one exchange, which was, was a very interesting moment during the, uh, during the, you know, the, the kind of heyday of the daily uh, coronavirus briefing at the White House with the president. Let's play that exchange uh, where I asked Dr. Burks about kind of what, what I knew that she saw as a flaw in the CDC guidelines uh, on testing. On the state of California is now uh, partially broken with CDC uh, restrictions on who would get guidance on who should get testing, because uh, they want to test people without any symptoms at all in high-risk environments like a, like a nursing home. Uh, do you agree with this, uh, Vice President Pence? Do you agree well, with this? Well, not only do we agree with it, it was in our guidelines. Our guidelines yeah. <laughs> that was fundamental to our guidelines, and I think we were the first group that said, Testing asymptomatics will be key. We've always said that we think that's a, con a significant contribution to infections. And we went to the places where we thought it was most critical to find cases the earliest. But that, has, that was in the guidelines from the very beginning. And we think it's fundamental, um, both for right now and going through the fall, because that will be our early alert if any of the COVID virus reappears. How much more testing are we going to need? Know the, guidelines? the CDC guidelines. Well, it, 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 it's currently in the CDC guidelines. Dr. I mean, you heard the answer. Her guidelines are something, frankly, that nobody was seeing. It, the CDC guidelines are the notifications that go out to all of the, the, the healthcare providers around the, co the country. Um, and, and there was a, like a little bit of a switcheroo. It's like, well, it's in the guidelines. No, no, it's not in the guidelines I was talking about and the guidelines that matter. Anyway, uh, I, I just remember the, the expression on the president's face. He was so happy that I had been knocked down by Do Dr. Burks. And anyway, so it was good to, to hear her now all these months later to um, express regret for, um, yeah. for, for, for being misleading because it was highly, highly misleading what she said to me. Yeah. And that was, a, I mean, that, that was a moment you're, it must've been cringe worthy for you to have the president, <laughs> yeah. you know, point that out and jump on it. But I think, I think we heard from her as uh, in this interview, as clear a distillation uh, as we have to date about how she viewed her role through this. Keep in mind, President Trump is still president for another month. So she's still got to be a little bit careful in what she says, but this, the mantra of respectful in public and clear in private. Uh, and, and, and her saying that it will come to light what she was doing behind the scenes more and more as she uh, engaged in, in, in uh, something, of a, something of a high wire act uh, in, in trying to uh, not undercut publicly a president who was actively spreading uh, misinformation and disinformation and just false, false, uh, false data, false information throughout. And she was up there. Uh, watching it happen in, in real time. Uh, her facial expressions became memes over time. And I think the way that she balanced that uh, and now is explaining it, I think is pretty telling. And, and it'll be debated for a long time. Uh, it'll be debated because, uh, and I do know, because I was reporting on, on this extensively at the time, uh, that, that, that she was, you know, somebody who did not, gave the unvarnished truth uh, in, in those coronavirus task force meetings. 
you know, you saw at some point, I remember there was a story saying they, they called Dr. Fauci, Dr. Gloom and Doom. I mean, they, they basically get called Dr. Burks the same thing with her charts, uh, you know, tracking uh, a really high level of concern. But the thing that will be debated, it's one thing to raise those issues privately at those meetings. But this is a pandemic where people are looking to public officials to give them guidance on the nature of the threat and how they should conduct their lives to protect themselves. So the public messaging may be just as important or more important than whatever private messaging uh, she was giving down in the uh, down in the Situation Room. Um, but you know that, that that'll be an issue that'll be that'll be debated uh, uh, for for a long time whether or not she she walked that line. But you know, look, she's um, it is fascinating, and I'm, I'm I. I, I Love that we got her uh, literally on the road going into uh, <laughs> going towards Tennessee. I mean, she's been on this incredible road trip, and and I would think that that um, I, I know there's a lot of reluctance in, in the Biden team that I can tell, you know, to kind of uh, to, to to keep her on because of uh, you know the, the the perception and maybe a bit of the reality of of, of her unwillingness to confront the president, at least in public, um, when when he was saying things that were outrageous. Uh, but she's got a, she's got a lot of expertise, and, and I, I would think that that expertise would be would be would be valuable uh, for the Biden team, at least in a in some kind of a consulting fashion during this transition. Uh, Rick, let's uh, let's end it right here. We have got a a special edition of Powerhouse Politics coming next week. It's gonna be it's gonna be freaking great. Am I right? <laughs> I, I no mean, doubt. It's going to be greater than great. Let's close out the year right. We're going to close out the year right. So stay safe. Uh, thank you uh, to uh, to our listeners. Thank you to Avery Miller, Trevor Hastings, the Powerhouse Politics team. We'll be back next week.